back to the Family Matters podcast. It's Kendra and Jackie here today. Well, last episode, we discussed how we needed a paradigm shift on our role as a mom. Mm -hmm. And today we want to talk about some more specific aspects of our modern day American culture. Basically, we want to talk about why is it that mothering is hard it feels harder because yeah on the one hand we acknowledge that there's a lot of ways in which things are easier right we have microwaves we have an abundance of both convenient junk food and also super whole organic perfectly healthy foods lots of you know to know a recipe i don't even have to get my cookbook out i can literally just search through my phone so lest we offend our grandmothers let us just go on the record saying we understand things are easier in some ways But all of these conveniences just contribute to the confusion at why is it that there's this very real struggle of modern parenting. Parents are unhappy and stressed and overwhelmed. And in fact, the Pew Research Center found that 70% of the public says it's more difficult to be a mother today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And 60% say the same about fathers. So why is that? Kendra, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's very mysterious, right? Like we've got microwaves. Actually, in, in preparation for this episode, I actually called my grandma. I was like, I feel like we need some, you know, first person perspective on this issue since, you know, I wasn't a parent in the 1950s. And she said, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of things that are easier about today. Um and safer about today. She talked about car seats. Um, she talked about, um, you know, there's so much more supervision. We can, our, our kids can take phones when they go places. So, you know, kids aren't lost as often. I mean, there's just lots of good things going on. But yeah, mothers are so much more stressed out. Fathers too. There's just a lot of research about mothers. And since we're mothers, that's what we tend to talk about. So obviously there's different challenges based on different ages of children. So like parents of teenagers are worried about different things than parents of young kids. But we found that there are some things that everybody faces to some extent. And so we wanted to make a list and kind of talk about those today. And we're probably going to do this in two parts. So uh, yeah, we'll just see how that goes. So buckle up and get ready, guys. There was a study. why you're sad. I'll tell you Um, why you're sad. Just kidding. Hopefully In this very happy podcast. And we don't want to make this depressing because every single one of these has solutions. And we want to talk about the solutions just as much as we want to talk about the problems because you can overcome these. These are all things that there are steps you can take to make them better. And we have had experience making better and seen experiences making worse. And we've got lots of research to share. So let's just dive in. Um, One thing that I think all mothers in America and parents in America are facing in greater amounts today than they did in our grandparents' generation is isolation. Almost a third of Americans live alone. And we know from our experience that it takes a village to raise a child. And lots of other countries have those villages, uh, you know, metaphorically and actually speaking. I, I did a summer of volunteering in Uganda. And just because of the nature of how their society is structured, they have these tiny little huts that they live in and no electricity. And so all of their activities take place outside. They're washing clothes outside, they're cooking outside. And so they're cooking right next to the other lady's hut who's also cooking outside of her house. And so they just naturally are building friendships with other people and their kids are all playing together because that's just how their society is structured. And so there are structures, whether those are physical structures, like the fact that we are inside of a car by ourselves driving to work, 
And they are also social structures. So we are less likely to join clubs now than we used to or go to church than we used to. There's a really good book I'm reading right now called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. He's a Harvard professor. It was written in 2000. So I'd love to read some of these updated statistics, but he found that there's just a lot less civic engagement today. Like not only is there less PTA and Boy Scouts and book clubs, there's less voting, there's less visiting of friends, less volunteering, less church attendance. I mean, in every way we are connecting with each other today less than we used to. And it's, and it's across classes, it's across races, it's across every demographic it's not you know it's not a poor problem or a rural problem or an urban it's everywhere everybody is decreasing in these and he, he talks about some of the causes and we're not going to go super into detail about these in this podcast because we're actually going to do a whole podcast about how to build your village which i'm really excited about yeah that'll but be a good one some of them you know we have a cultural of individualism there's been greater movement from small towns to cities and suburbs where there's less civic engagement. Um, there is more commuting, which takes away from civic engagement, more to career families and uh, television specifically is one of the big factors that he's found. So just thinking about some solutions to this, again, we're going to do a future podcast about building your village, but essentially that's the solution. Find your community, find your people. You know, relationships are built on reciprocity. And just an example of, of that. So early on in my motherhood, in fact, I think I was actually pregnant. But in my congregation of church, which that is one way to build a community is find a church, find a spiritually like-minded group of people. Anyways, in my congregation of church, there is a girl who was kind of assigned to watch out for me. And we hadn't really gotten to that place of friendship yet we had talked a little bit but i i was really sick and i needed some help finding a doctor and i didn't know anybody but i thought you know what i'm gonna call this girl and ask her i barely know her and maybe she'll think this is weird but i'm just gonna reach out and make myself vulnerable and the process of of reaching out asking for help from somebody who I knew would be, who was wanting to have a relationship. Anyways, I just learned that there has to be a degree of vulnerability in building relationships and that taking that leap of faith is worth it. So if you are just feeling completely isolated, completely alone, there are ways to meet people and find people. And again, we will do another podcast about that. And also, you know, maybe maybe it's worth thinking about what is holding me back from using a variety of resources to make friends. Yeah, I love that. So, yeah, we okay. have to reciprocity. I had a I took anthropology in college and I I only remember one thing other than the fact that we watched a bunch of weird movies. I do remember the fact that he always talked about relationships are based on reciprocity. Relationships are based on reciprocity. And just reciprocity means give and take. You won't feel comfortable asking for somebody to give repeatedly without you giving back. Like there has to be, it has to go both ways. And so when somebody offers to help, what they're saying is, I want to have a relationship with you. And yeah. by accepting people's help, we are accepting the building of a relationship with that other person. And so, yeah, we need to be comfortable asking and giving yes. to the people around us. That's a big part of it. Kind of the parting question from this section is how can you create a better support system for yourself especially with the people who are physically around you and how can you improve the relationships available to you yeah the next thing that is making it harder to be a parent these days is just that there's less togetherness even when in families Kendra do you mm -hmm. want to talk about that for a minute 
Right. So isolation kind of among our society, but even inside of our own houses, we are less likely to eat dinner together. Um, we're less likely to interact with each other. And especially since we've created these personal devices, it's very easy for a whole bunch of people to be in the same house and still be very separate from each other. Yeah. I'm curious, Kendra, have you ever had the family reunion you know, you get together with all your adult siblings and your parents, and then everybody's just on their phone. Everybody's on their phone. Because that yeah. has happened in oh, my family. And my I soul. I started telling my family, I'm going to bring my phone basket, and you guys all have to put your phones in because right now you're with me, and who else would you want to be talking to? Sure. <laughs> and there kidding. are ways. No, yeah. And there are ways that you can still be on your phone and like be together. Like, I'll see my siblings. They're probably all, I, I don't know if any of them are actually going to listen to this. We'll see. We'll be sitting on the couch and like one of them will show a video to the rest of us on oh, their yeah, phones. Yeah, and yeah. so that's like, mm-hmm. like, that's a group building. Or the other day, this was a blast, an absolute blast to do during quarantine. We played Jackbox games virtually. Oh, those are so fun. You all you need could, to play those. Yes, yeah. they're really fun. And you, and again, we're like playing a game and we're on like FaceTime with each other as we're playing this game. And so, yes, like technology absolutely can be used to connect people together but it is also because it is used individually it's more likely to be used for individual purposes so for those of you who haven't listened to the show before you may not know that kendra me i'm a little obsessed with the amish and (laughs) i will tell you why again they they're really good at not just talking the talk but walking the walk the amish understand that sometimes you have to make individual sacrifices in order to benefit from the community the community benefits that you you get um and and so a lot of the technology that the amish reject is not because they have something against technology but because they are so pro communities they recognize that introducing new technology can sometimes take away from community so for example they'll have one telephone at the end of the street so you could still use the phone and if there was an emergency or something you could use it but you'd have to stand outside in the cold to use that phone and the Amish recognized that if they had a telephone in every house, it would discourage people from visiting each other. And again, mm-hmm. visiting people is important to them. So just recognizing that there are personal benefits that come from looking out for yourself, but there's also personal benefits that come from strengthening your community, strengthening your family members, strengthening the other people in your home. Uh, we willingly sacrifice, for example, our, our personal tax dollars to pay for a 911 line that we may yeah. never use or like a national park that we may never visit. But we want mm-hmm. those to be a part of our community, part of what ties us all together. And as family members, we may have to all agree on what movie we all want to watch instead of each of us watching our own favorite movie in our own bedrooms in order to benefit from the family togetherness that that creates. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And so really the question is what personal sacrifices of time and effort are you willing to make to reap the benefits of a close family. Um, One idea that comes to my mind, just an example, is, you know, extracurriculars. We live in a day and age, and we'll talk about this later, where there are so many activities, especially depending upon where you live. Where I live, my kids could do archery and ice skating and, like, underwater basket weaving. I mean, I don't know for (laughs) sure, but I'm I'm sure it's out there somewhere. somewhere. Anyways, the, the point is, as a parent, I have wondered a lot about... Is it more important that I let my five-year-old go do, you know, ice skating or is time as a family more important? And each family has to figure that out. But 
But I know that for us, we've decided that while our kids are young, what they needed more was a relaxing evening routine and time with family more than extracurriculars. And, and again, that's something every family has to figure out. But um, but those are those are priorities and decisions that we all make. And I think just recognizing the importance of time together as a family. Yeah, I just realized that I totally went off topic when I was talking about the Amish. So I'm talking about building community. But in their families, the Amish will heat one room in the house <laughs> so that everybody will be pressured to go into that room and spend time together before they go off to their separate cold bedrooms. Um, so again, that is a sacrifice. Holy cow, would you be willing to have like a cold house so that you would encourage your kids to spend more time together? I wouldn't, <laughs> but like, I think mm -hmm. the principle of what are you willing to give up or what are you willing to change uh, in your household, in your routines, in your life so that your family spends more time together. And I will say that one of the biggest ones, and I don't know if this is one of the easiest ones, but this is measured by a lot of social science researchers is family dinners. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of data showing that when people are eating dinners together with their families, Kids are less likely to do drugs. Kids are more likely to talk to their parents about issues that are going on in their families. There's uh, less fighting that goes on. When we've talked about marriage, we've talked about having five positive interactions for every negative interaction, and that mm -hmm. that's a good balance for family life. Family dinners are usually a positive deposit that happens every single day. And so you can be sure that you're putting in a positive deposit into your relationships with every member of your family by eating together. Like there's power mm -hmm. in eating together that I, I don't think we, we fully realize. And so efforts to make sure that people are eating together, regardless of how fancy the meal is that you're eating, mm -hmm. uh, really just pay off. Doesn't it? Yeah. Just... yeah. And if you're feeling like, well, my family dinners are actually a mess, there are lots of resources for you. I mean, I've got four young kids and I swear that the time I spend preparing and then cleaning up the meal is about probably about six times longer than the actual, <laughs> the actual meal itself. Meal. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> no, I mean, totally I've got these dirty and they're adorable, <laughs> but they just make messes, these little guys. And it's, it's just kind of crazy time. But but that is an anchor in our day and it's something that they know and lately we've been lighting a candle because it's starting to get a little fallish and cold and and like they just get so excited they go and they find the candle and they put it on Aww, the table and, and they just think like okay it's dinner time you know mm -hmm. and even though it'll only be about two minutes long like hey we did it right and so That's right. especially and, with young kids yeah and anyway so my point is like you know regardless of your family situation you you can find a way to whether it's dinner or some other type of regular routine where you guys are together, there are ways to kind of to have that positive time. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, the next category is just society. We are raising kids in an increasingly crazy, divided, wild world. Mm -hmm. So, Kendra, you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, in the Pew study that Jackie talked about earlier, about a third of parents said that the biggest challenge in raising kids today is dealing with you know, various societal issues. So peer pressure, gangs, media, drugs, etc. And I, I think anyone who has children today is feeling those pressures. Uh, it feels like we're in a much less child-friendly and family-friendly society. Like adults are creating a society that works for them and not recognizing the impact that that has on sort of the rising generation. People are also less likely to form families today than they used to. And I think that because there are fewer families, we are also thinking about families 
less and kids less. And we have a culture that it's just not paying as much attention to children. And so, I mean, the, the, the really dumb things, like if I'll show my kids something on YouTube, like we, we will watch like an educational video about volcanoes or something. And then there'll be like some ad, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm like, like laughing. Cause I'm like, really Oh, you've seen that one too. Ad or graphic <laughs> ad or like preview for a movie. That's just really scary or child inappropriate. And like yeah. nobody cares, like nobody's paying attention to whether those happen or not. Yeah. And yeah. unless people like us who are paying attention to these things, unless we say something, the culture isn't going to change. Like, you yeah. know? Yeah. You've got a good example, Jackie. Go ahead. Oh, I this just reminds me of my experience taking my kids trick or treating. So I live in a suburban neighborhood with a lot of young families. Seriously, there are kids everywhere. But when we go trick-or-treating, we visited, I actually recently moved to my neighborhood, but we came to check it out a couple years ago. Anyways, we were trick-or-treating. There were hardly any trick-or-treaters out. Now, that might just be this neighborhood. I don't have any specific data, but to me, it illustrated a trend that I've noticed personally where when I was growing up, Halloween felt as though it were more of a kid-centered holiday where kids got to dress up. They went out with friends. It was like this fun kid holiday that the adults helped put on where the kids got to go dress up be with their friends anyways it was just more kid centered and now it seems like it's it's as much an adult holiday if not more an adult holiday where the adults get a pass for dressing up in clothes they wouldn't normally wear and partying Mm -hmm. and my experience trick-or-treating where there were hardly any houses available for trick-or-treaters and hardly anybody out it just made me think and then just some things i had heard on the radio about oh all the parties that all the adults are going to get to go to i thought where are the kids in this you know and anyway so why does that example matter well it's just when people don't care about families when society doesn't think about families and kids the culture ignores them too and we all need to be a vocal and visible advocate for families i know kendra you have an example of just some ways we can do this yeah i was gonna say you you actually since you mentioned halloween i just had to bring this up so in detroit they have what's called devil's night which is which is the night before halloween and it's the night when people light things on fire like what? hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of abandoned because there's so many abandoned houses in Detroit. And so people just like light them on fire. And and it's just like this fun thing for teenagers and older and, okay. and adults to do. And it's like, hello, like that abandoned house that you're lighting on fire is next door to a house where people live. Or yeah, that's... Uh, actually a much scarier example. Uh, well, not enough. This is scary. Everything's scary in Detroit. <laughs> um, I remember I was working uh, at a woman's house and they said, you know, oh, New Year's Eve's coming up. You know, make sure you're out of town. I was like, why, why do we need to be out of town for New Year's? She's like, well, because of the shooting. Everybody wants to shoot their guns in the air, you know, for fun when the clock was. And I was like, and, and those bullets, and she's like, and those bullets come back down. Let me tell you, they do. And they hit people, you know. And it's like, oh again, gosh. people aren't thinking. People are yeah. just not thinking about the impact of their actions on and people in general, but especially yeah. kids and families. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so as far as solutions, let's talk about happy things. Um, there are <laughs> there are really positive ways that you can be a vocal and a visible advocate for families that are not weird, that don't make you a pariah. Really simple one. When we lived in New Orleans, another city that's not famous for its safety, um, we lived in a neighborhood where we did. I mean, there were shootings, and the neighbor that lived on the other side of our house uh, got held up at gunpoint. The first week we were there 
um, oh my gosh. on our driveway. I know. Welcome to the neighborhood. And I was seven months pregnant. Anyway, I had this new baby and I had a dog. And so we'd go on walks in our neighborhood during the day, you know, when it's safe, safer, I guess. And I would say hi to the neighbors as I'm walking by with a baby in a stroller and a dog. And, and again, I'm not like, you know, I'm just saying hi. It wasn't like a, it's not like a big deal. I'm not like stopping and starting, you know, deep conversations with everybody, but I want people to see that my baby lives on their street. Yeah. And again, you know, the impact that that has when people are seeing kids, when people are thinking about families, they're more likely to take that into consideration in their actions. And hopefully that passes on to, you know, bigger companies and, and the media as well. So we can do lots of things. We can speak positively about big families, for example. Um, we can protest inappropriate magazines at checkout stands. I've got another New Orleans story. If anybody's watched Chopped, one of the judges, Aaron Sanchez, who I'm a big fan of, has a restaurant in New Orleans. And I was so excited to go to his restaurant. And we went to the restaurant and I had this new baby with me. And I was a little self-conscious about the fact that I had this baby in a car seat sitting next to me at this really nice restaurant. And then Aaron Sanchez came out of the kitchen. He starts walking around and, and people are taking pictures with him. And oh, I'm so, so cool. excited. And my husband's like, you should go take a picture with him. I was like, no, I don't want to be weird. And, and so I just sit there. He comes around to our table, sees my baby and reaches down and picks him up, kisses him and says, I love babies. <laughs> Oh, that is so was, cool. It was so cool. It's like, oh my gosh, Jack, you've been blessed by the food gods. Anyway, yeah. we did take a picture with me and my husband and Aaron Sanchez holding my baby. Now, let mm -hmm. me tell you, I felt so much better about myself as a mom and having kids and having a family mm -hmm. when I had that kind of validation. We can do that for other people too and say, you know what? Your kid is okay. Like, yeah. it is okay for your kid to be here. And the fact that your kid is on this bus and crying is not an inconvenience to me. That's just the way life is. Yeah. Well, and I think recognizing that our society is made up of children. There are children in our society and they are allowed to be children. They are just as important members of, of our society as adults. Translation, when you go to the store and you see a two-year-old acting like a two-year-old, and his mother is trying to help him, you don't scoff and roll your eyes and give the mom a dirty look. You know, of course, we want to help our two-year-olds behave, but also sometimes they're just a two-year-old, and we be kind about that. We be, we be gentle about the children who are growing up around us and, and recognize that we want our society to be one where they can grow up in a happy environment, a happy community, because guess what? They're going to be the adults taking care of us when we're old, That's and we don't right. want them to be <laughs> sad and messed up adults. Okay? Amen. So, Amen. So, so Amen. the question for the section is, what could I do to encourage a better culture for families where families and children know that we are all on their team? We are all yeah. on the same team, and I love that. So speaking of children, another issue that is definitely more prevalent in society today, sort of our next section is more behavior problems among children. I was talking to my grandma on the phone and she, she said, man, kids are just not as well behaved today as they used to be. And there's just a lot more problems. I, you know, again, this is kind of tied to the societal issues, but there are more family problems. There's more mental health issues. There's more juvenile delinquency. There's one study I read a long time ago, I couldn't find, but it just talked about what were teachers, school teachers' biggest concerns. And like back in the 60s, it was 
chewing gum and swearing versus today where it's like weapons and drugs. So oh, it's it's sad. really sad. I feel like parents feel a lot more overwhelmed with behavior problems than they used to. And lest any of you think it's because, well, that's because they could just pull out a belt back in the 60s and uh, all the problems would be over. Obviously, nope. that's not that's not the answer. That's not it. <clears throat> we could do a whole, we'll probably do a podcast on that as well at some yep. point. This is definitely not true in every case. But I think one of our problems here is our culture of individualism also causes us to focus on the kids by themselves. Like, yeah. what is the kid's problem? Why, what's wrong with this kid? Where it seems pretty obvious that kids result from their families. Mm-hmm. You can't fix kids in isolation. In fact, I, I, I know a lot of students of mine have said that they want to become child therapists or they want to work with children. And I always and, and, and I sometimes I've mentioned, well, I hope you also enjoy working with parents <laughs> because children come with parents. Children come from parents and yeah. you can't fix children in isolation. So I wrote an article for the Institute for Family Studies that talks about uh, family-focused interventions, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I just talk about how increases in divorce and family instability uh, lead to all kinds of problems for kids. And therefore, you know, problems for kids means problems for teachers and parents and future girlfriends and boyfriends. Um, I think the key here is that fixing misbehavior isn't the solution. It's fixing families. In other words, Mm -hmm. we can't expect miracles in classrooms if we can't expect even basic stability in the home. Yeah, exactly. I read once, oh, and I'm going to butcher this. I'll have to find it. But it was just a venting protest article from a teacher who was venting about how it's expected of her not only to teach, you know, the R's, the reading, writing, arithmetic, but also to deal with so much of the brokenness that her students come from. You know, they have to not only be the teacher, but the therapist. And Mm -hmm. anyways, that's a lot of pressure on schools. Her point is that families are responsible. Families are responsible for helping kids to be well. And it's and we shouldn't put it on institutions to fix these children. Families are personalized repair machines for individuals. And so the question is, how can I help the families around me? And also, how can I help my own family? That's my personal takeaway. It's noble and wonderful to want to go be a child therapist or a teacher or a social worker or any of those wonderful and important community helper jobs. But just as, if not more importantly, is what type of a sister are you going to be? What type of a mother? What type of a father? You have so much power within your own family to help the little people around you have Mm -hmm. a safe and nurturing environment as a mom, I am the f- on the first line of defense if there are things that my kids are struggling with, if they have any sort of a emotional or mental disorder or physical problem. or and, and it's my job to teach them how to behave and how to relate to people. And, and of course, I'm not the only one who has to teach them those things, but I'm the first one to notice things and the first one that has that opportunity to, to teach them. And so that's just a lot of influence right there. And and I, I'm strengthened by the idea that I am doing a lot of good for my community by helping these four little people grow up in a safe, happy environment where they're learning to be 
to be well and whole and to be contributors. Yeah, we have to believe that the things that we are doing in our homes are in fact making society better for others and and seeing those actions as connected. I love the fact that Jesus didn't say to go and love somebody on the other side of the world. He said, love your neighbor. What he's saying is we need to strengthen the people around us, immediately around us. And that not only is that the easiest group of people to serve, but it's also the place that we will be the most effective at serving. And so, like you said, reaching out and strengthening the people immediately around us really is the key to success, both for ourselves personally and to strengthening our society as a whole. So yeah, amen. Absolutely. All right, well, the next problem we want to talk about are just all the many different choices and options of what opportunities to give your kids in the different ways to raise your kids. So you know, many choices. You were just talking about <laughs> fast food and organic. And yeah, like, do you want to be the do you want to be the super sporty family that plays all these sports? Do you want to be this crunchy family that's like all organic? Do you want to be the crafty family, you know, or do you want to be a little bit of everything or there's just so many opportunities out there. Um there's a mothering guru who I love, uh Linda Iyer and I, in one in her book, A Joy-Filled Mother or something, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. But she says, give your kids all the opportunities you can. And I mean, she had nine children. And so that's really saying something that she was able to do that. But I don't know that I completely agree. I mean, yes, I want my kids to have lots of opportunities. But also, I want our family life to be more than taxi driving everybody. And I don't want to have to spend $50,000 a year paying for all these different things you know yeah you have to recognize that accessing opportunities comes with an opportunity cost right if you want your kids to have every opportunity there's going to be a cost to that so i mean and that that could be worth it to you but you just have to recognize that there's a cost yeah, exactly. Like you said, to family and, time and togetherness, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and it's not just extracurricular activities, but I mean, just in my area, there are, oh, I should have counted, but there are about seven different ways you can educate your child that oh, are yeah, all available. Nowadays, right? <laughs> yeah, and they're all available in my area. And so it took my husband and I two years to decide which school system to put our kids in because I was just stressed out. I was like, how do people make this decision? Yeah, her kids didn't even go to school until second grade. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that I'm wasn't kidding. it. I... <laughs> nice one. Okay. I forget where I'm going with this. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, how do we deal of... with it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So how do you deal with that? How do you feel confident in your decisions? Well, essentially, it comes down to prioritizing which decisions actually matter, right? Mm, Not everything yeah. can be a 10. But Kendra, you have something about an NPR interview oh, yeah. or... A lot of data has shown that kids today are significantly more anxious than they used to be. In fact, yeah. the average kid today would be admitted to therapy in the 1950s for being a total basket case because there's just that so much sad. anxiety among children. I know it's not sad. And, yeah. um, and we could point to lots of potential different causes. But I think certainly one of them is this increase in uncertainty and change and options. And one thing that the Amish have very, very low rates of anxiety and depression. And this these are people who only get an eighth grade education. These are people who have their life basically planned out for them. And I mean, that sounds really depressing to the rest of us, but it's not mm-hmm. to them. Like there's something about, about certainty and about 
predictability that actually gives us a lot of peace. And that makes sense when we talk about things like routines, right? Like we talked about yeah. how predictability is really important to children. And yet, you know, we have predictable home routines, but then we say, by the way, you can be anything you want. You can go into any career you want, any college you want. You can have a relationship or not. You can have a family or not. You can be a big deal or not. You can be a man or a woman. Like there's just so many things, so yeah. many choices, so many changes. There's just yeah. a lot of anxiety among kids. I, I heard an NPR interview with uh, a scientist who studies the future, <laughs> studies social patterns and how he thinks they'll result in the future. And he said, the skill of the future is the ability to adapt to change because change is going to be the calling card of our future society. And that is, that's really scary for, yeah, for, uh, like for me as a mom. <laughs> and it's really scary for kids. Like when we aren't certain about things, when we when there isn't an expectation about how things are going to be, whether it's good or bad things, you know, even, even good things we talk about. I mean, you were talking about opportunities, Jackie, right? Like, I mean, the fact that they can do archery or soccer or, you know, underwater basket weaving is amazing, but that level of, of options and uncertainty is still really scary and causes anxiety in kids and not to mention moms. Yeah, exactly. So what is the solution here? We don't mean to be all doomsday. Again, prioritize which decisions actually matter. Not everything can be a 10. For the things that truly matter to you, why do they matter? Are you stressing about something that doesn't warrant stress, i.e., you know, are you stressing about whether to have organic versus inorganic baby food? Does that really matter? You decide. One documentary that I watched when I was pregnant with, or no, I had a new baby, it's the documentary Babies, and it's about babies who were raised in four different babies, one who's raised in San Francisco versus Africa versus Japan and Mongolia, and that was very comforting for me to watch. I realized that a lot of the things I thought were vital for a baby's well-being were actually just culturally constructed, and this helped me see that I could let go of a lot of things and not feel like a bad mom. I love talking to older moms who can help me just feel better about some of my decisions when they say, oh yeah, that doesn't matter. Okay, yeah, that does matter. Don't stress about that. So if you're feeling really stressed about a lot of things, think about why you're feeling stressed out. Maybe ask for advice and wisdom from from older parents who you respect. Yeah, that's a good idea. try to let as much go as you possibly can. Yeah, perspective. Our next category is just stressing about safety. Yeah, so we're not we're going to talk about sort of two kinds of safety. A huge chunk of parents and kids are afraid of society, afraid of going to school. Um, more parents are worried about gang violence or teen pregnancy or trouble with the law than used to be the case. And and while those are definitely real and they are definitely still a risk, and especially in places like Detroit, New Orleans, <laughs> well, and, and lots of other places in the country. We are actually a lot safer than we probably realize. In fact, kids today are much less likely to be hurt or kidnapped than they were 30 or 40 years ago. In fact, there's a Washington Post article that says there's never been a safer time to be a child in America. Like crime has plummeted uh, up to 77 percent, depending on the specific uh, type of crime. 
kids like almost never get kidnapped. If you wanted your kid to get kidnapped, you'd have to leave them outside unattended for like 750,000 years. Like that's how unlikely it is for your kid to be kidnapped. But I think don't do that. Though. Don't leave that alone. But most people think it's high probably because of, you know, the 24 seven news cycle. And, you know, we have a disproportionate coverage of really extreme cases. Also, how many crime shows are there? Oh my gosh. Like yeah. we see people getting murdered all the time, every day in fictional universes and we extrapolate that and i think to some extent i think sometimes the fact that we might be a little overprotective of kids could be influenced by sort of our fear of the judgment of others um Mm -hmm. how many times have i wanted to run into a store when my kid was asleep in the back seat and you know i can see him from the inside of the store but I still can't leave the baby in the car. Like, that's just, that is just a social no-no. Um, I have a playground next door to my house in a very, very safe neighborhood. And my little kids will just let themselves out of the house and go to the playground by themselves. And I always see parents look around like, where's your mom? And I'll wave, <laughs> out, I'll wave out the window and be like, I'm right here, you know. Um, yeah. But there is that sometimes uh, fear of judgment, you know. But I have to say that because we are so risk averse in our society, that's actually causing new problems for kids that Mm -hmm. because kids are so afraid of taking risks we're seeing kids just not growing up Uh, kids staying at home longer kids postponing things like uh, bad things like premarital sex but also good things like getting a driver's license and uh, taking initiative starting companies uh, asking for raises doing study abroad so I think there is something to be said for encouraging our kids to take healthy calculated risks that is obviously a really positive thing, especially for girls. There's good data suggesting that girls are significantly less likely to feel comfortable with risk taking than boys are. And so again, teaching kids how to take risks um, can be a really good thing when it's done in a careful way. Yeah, I think a good solution to this is just looking at kids in other cultures, again, referring to that baby's documentary that just like, gave me a lot of insight about how certain cultures don't worry about the same things I do and, and those babies are fine. By looking to other cultures or maybe other families who do things differently, that can expand the possibilities of what you think your kid is capable of. An example in, in my own life is my in-laws <clears throat> raised seven kids who are all very athletically inclined. They're really talented. Some of my in-laws might be listening to this and think wait no I'm not yes you are you just don't realize it anyways and the reason I think one of the reasons they're very athletically gifted is that my mother-in-law and my father-in-law encouraged them to take risks encouraged them to try things I would go to the park with my mother-in-law with my little kids and I would want to be this helicopter hovering mom who didn't let my kid climb on or do anything but she'd be like no no Let him learn. Let him experience what it feels like to climb up something. And like he can figure it out. You know, of course, you know, you can watch him and and be there. But but they are capable of more than you think. And anyway, so Mm -hmm. what are what are some healthy risks for your child? How can you prepare children for the trials they face? How can you encourage them? Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else you want to say about that, Kendra? Well, we want to talk about uh, maybe just touch on we've talked about physical risks, but I think, I I don't know about you guys, but I feel like for me, I'm much more worried about sort of the social risks and the cultural dangers that are around them. And we've kind of talked about this before earlier in this podcast and in others. But I just think a big piece of it, Jackie always talks about is, you know, focusing on what you can do in your home to prepare your kids and to make your home 
a place that is safe so that your kids can always come back there and will remember the good things you've taught them and take those things with them and trust that things are going to be okay. Like have hope that things are going to be okay, even in a scary world where your kids have to go out there and be a part of it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that we've established that there are a lot less physical risks for kids these days than we're in the past. But I know for myself, like Kendra, I'm far more worried about the spiritual risks, the emotional and mental health risks. And and I just think that a lot of the hard things that our kids are facing have more to do with, you know, what's going on in the inside. How do I say that better? Anyways, (laughs) but the solution that I have found that my husband and I believe is to create a home that is a sanctuary, a home that is where there are high expectations and also high love, a place Mm -hmm. where our kids want to be, where they understand what behavior is okay and where they have a place to truly rest and to truly feel seen and heard and loved, a place that is safe. I think that creating homes like that and even opening up that sort of a home to your kids' friends, having these, you know, if, if every family tried to make this sanctuary-like home, what would our world look like, right? And and if that sanctuary-like mm-hmm. home was open not only to their own kids, but to their kids' friends, because you're right, the, the outside world might be crazy. They might be trying to convince our kids of all sorts of crazy things that are not happy. There might be riots everywhere. But if your home is a sanctuary, then I think you'll be okay. Yeah, and you can have peace you know, speaking of anxiety, you can have peace and let go of that anxiety knowing that you do have control over your home. You get to decide what comes into your home and what stays in your home. And uh, regardless of how obnoxious your teenagers are, it is your home. And that is still in the circle of your control. And you can, if you focus on that, you don't have to stress as much about what's going on outside of it, I think. Anyway, I think that's exactly. a great point. Yeah. All right. So the next category is just intensive parenting intensive parenting i know for those of you who have not heard of intensive parenting essentially what it is well maybe you haven't heard of helicopter parenting but it's kind of like helicopter parenting to the next level it's a child-centered time-intensive approach to raising kids parents obsess over their children's extracurricular activities they splash cash on extra violin and drama and karate lessons even when money is tight they want to be involved with their kids at all times and will play with them at home and ask often about their thoughts and feelings and discuss and explain every angle of bad behavior sociologist annette laroe coined the phrase intensive parenting and in 1998 sharon hayes described intensive parenting as child-centered expert guided and emotionally absorbing absorbing yeah so i was thinking about why do parents feel the need to be intensive parents i think there is this pressure to just fixate and be obsessive about every aspect of your kids because you just don't want to mess up and i think it's because parents feel this ultimate responsibility for how their kids turn out and that it's all on them. It's all on us, yeah. And I think there is this culture, a growing cultural expectation among some classes of people that, you know, you're not doing right by your kids if you don't be there for everything and provide the moon and Disneyland and, and, and give them this like perfectly catered childhood where they're 
going to go be successful and perfect in every way. Yeah, in fact, um, I've, I've read a lot of studies recently, really surprising information about even working mothers today spend more time playing with their kids than stay-at-home moms did in the 1960s. Like, there's a really, that's a really easy explanation for why mothers are feeling more stressed out. Like, we have so much less time because we are feeling this pressure to be so much more involved. Now, I think it's great that parents are spending more time playing with their kids yeah. and interacting with their kids and teaching their kids. Like, I think those are good things. But when every solution to every problem your kids is experiencing is that you need to spend more time on fill in the blank. Yeah, that or, you need to do better. You're not doing enough. Need to be more involved, need to need to ask questions, need to be there. Like, that can get really overwhelming. And the thing is, that has become, the, that's not only become the norm, but that has become the ideal for every class of society. Even poor working moms still feel like that's what they're supposed to be doing, even if they can't do it. Again, this, yeah. this really time-intensive version of parenting, which can make a lot of parents feel really stressed out. So you want to talk about that, Jackie? Um. Well, I, no, I, sorry, I was just listening to you. I wasn't like thinking about what I was going to say. But um, so I think it's good to be playing with your kids and be caring about your kids. We were just talking about creating the sanctuary. But when you think that everything your kid experiences and every success that your kid could possibly have is up to you to create, when you are just so incredibly emotionally absorbed in every detail of how your kids are and, and their life, that is, that's too much and you're going to be burnt out. Um, I was reading, can I just real quick, I wanted to, yeah. um, in the book Bringing a Bebe, which is about uh, French parenting, it's very funny, um, they talked about how French parents don't feel the need to carry their children from one developmental stage to the next. <laughs> I love that phrase. That's like, beautiful. We feel like kids are never just going to learn stuff. We have to teach it to them or else. I, I definitely felt that way. I, I mean, if you've had kids, you know, and you've really stressed about potty training and then one day they just get it, you know, and you realize yep. that there are some things your kids are just mm -hmm. going to learn. I think one of the solutions here is faith. We have to have faith that parenting is something we each can individually do really well and that we don't need special tools or training. Really the basics of what kids need are love, a family that loves each other and loves them. They need to have their physical and spiritual needs met. They need to be taught how to be kind and do what's right, and that's it. And yeah. everything else is really just gravy. You read about some of these incredible individuals who have gone on to do amazing things, and it wasn't because they had a stressed out, crazy pants mom following them around, bugging them about what they're doing all the time at all hours of the day. You know, you're talking about how kids meet their developmental milestones. I remember from my first little boy, when he was about one and a half, I was really stressing about, oh, I need to take away his pacifier. Like he's going to become, <laughs> yeah, he's going to become too dependent upon it. And I love knowing that things like that work themselves out. A lot of our kids' struggles are just part of being a kid. And that doesn't mean you don't be there for them, but, but it's going to work out. And I think another solution is, is allowing help of, other people mm -hmm. it's it doesn't need to be all on you sometimes i worry about these parents who just completely isolate themselves and think that they have to be the moon and the sun to their kids and well, we've we've talked about that with in marriage i think sometimes people expect their spouse to be the moon and the sun and and fulfill their every need and, and to be honest that's a lot of pressure 
on one person to fulfill the needs of any other one person. Yeah, effective parenting isn't defined at the end of the continuum. It's the middle ground. Sometimes I think we think that that intensive parent is the right way to do things, but the truth is the right way is that middle ground. Yeah, and I think what I don't want people to take home from this is we're not saying that you should just you know, resign yourself to being a mediocre parent. We're saying that doing that is, in fact, the best way of doing things. I mean, if we were to use a plant example, you don't douse a plant with a gallon of water and you don't deprive it of water. You give it a little bit every day. A little bit every day isn't the mediocre solution. That is the best solution. Like that is, in fact, the most solution. We have to see that watering a plant a little at a day and loving our children and taking care of them in reasonable amounts we just have to see that as, in fact, the best way to do things. It just requires, exactly. again, a shift in paradigm. So the question to sort of think about, what are some unnecessary, maybe intensive mothering practices that you find yourself adopting? Um, what are some things that maybe you could let go of? Perfect. Yeah. So our next category is there's increased judgment and criticism from other parents. Perhaps because we have this cultural idea that intensive parenting is the best sort of parenting maybe we subconsciously expect other parents to exhibit intensive parenting behaviors and they're not going to do that perfectly all the time and we're not going to do that perfectly all the time but we're all afraid of being judged for not and so eventually Mm -hmm. we all collapse from burnout and then we're exhausted, we're tired, we think that this whole parenting gig sucks and we hand our kid a tablet so that we can <laughs> finally have some peace. Right. And um, I think there is just this modern phenomenon of, man, I just have to give my kids TV. Like, I mean, I have a TV time every day from 4.30 to either 5.30 or 6, depending upon how long dinner takes me. And I will be honest, I love that break. And I would love to come to a place in my mothering where I don't feel like I need it as much, you know, and maybe that's an unrealistic expectation. But I think that that is a common feeling amongst parents is just you get, you just get exhausted and then you just want to give your kid a screen, you know, a little babysitter. And I don't think there's anything wrong with needing breaks, but um Maybe avoiding burnout as a parent is really what I'm alluding to. It's just living yeah. a lifestyle that is conducive to mom and dad being happy. I love there's this term in a, a Charlotte Mason education. Charlotte Mason was an educator who uh, has a philosophy on how to best educate children anyways. But she ha- she coined this term mother culture, which is essentially a learning culture where mother is the primary educator, but also mother and her interests and the way the home is run is a way that is nourishing not only to the children but also to the mother and takes her needs for rest and quiet and creativity into account and anyways this is totally off topic but no it's not getting back to increased judgment and criticism my point is i think a lot of parents are quietly exhausted and we feel guilty for being exhausted and we don't want to be judged for it and we want to hide it and so um how can we get rid of some of this judgment and this criticism and this fear of judgment? Yeah. And here's the thing. If you look up articles about how moms are really judgmental of other moms, like the take home message and all of those is like, guys, we should just stop being so judgmental. And it's like, well, okay, but like, 
why is there so much more of this today than there used to be? Like, wh what is it about society that is making this a bigger problem? And obviously, we could point to lots of potential um, causes. Again, I think the fact that we all feel like we're doing it by ourselves, we're all parenting alone, that there's a lot less involvement with other people. And I think um, we, you know, we want to be community builders. Obviously, we should be the change, you know, treating others with compassion and see others as as you know, a sibling or a friend who is parenting rather than a stranger that you're using a measuring stick, like Jackie alluded to the, the you know, a mom with a two-year-old at the grocery store. So why do we have so much trouble doing this? I think part of the problem is that because we have such an individualistic attitude towards parenting, we don't see ourselves as part of the village that is raising our child. And frankly, that other mom may not see you as part of her village either. And like, lash out at you for trying to be supportive or trying to help. I had, you know, a mom that came up to me in the grocery store. Uh, oh no, I had a child that was climbing out of the shopping cart at the grocery store. And P.S. She was wearing her seatbelt. And the other mom was like, oh, oh, and came and just grabbed the baby, you know, because she was standing up. And it would be really easy for somebody to be like, get your hands off my child. I'm the mom and I will parent them as I see fit, you know. But what we don't realize is we are hurting ourselves. <laughs> we really are hurting ourselves by doing that. I love this quote. This is by a lawyer talking about um, sort of the moral assumptions of CPS caseworkers about their clients' parenting, speaking of being judgmental of people's parenting. She says, quote, parenting is something we are inclined to judge harshly at the same time that it is impossible to do in anything but an extremely flawed way. You can't get it right. We all know this. We all strive for greater excellence than we have hope of actually achieving. Yet, we couple with this knowledge the extreme intolerance for shortcomings of other parents. Oh, man, don't you feel that? That's just, yeah. it really hurts. So I think that the answer, like you said, is just we need to do more, uh, you know, setting a better example, serving people, loving people, connecting with people, seeing them as members of the same team as ours. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think just being honest, you know, I have really appreciated the authenticity and vulnerability from other mothers. I remember a few weeks ago, I had a friend come over Friday afternoon with her kids and I had had a terrible week. You guys, it was so bad. And she came and she offered, she, she was making herself lunch and she offered to bring some extras to me. And, you know, my my natural inclination would be like, oh, no, don't worry about it. But I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to accept this. She brought me a delicious lunch and then she came over and I just let myself be honest about how grumpy I felt and how I was pulling my hair out about some issues we had been having and I just didn't know what to do. And I kind of let her see my mess um, and that was good for our friendship yeah, that is good it helped her to know that she wasn't alone because she had also had a hard week and um it was good to know that you know we're trying to figure this out and this isn't easy to do and we need a village we need friends and i came away from that afternoon play date feeling so much better and i realized mm. that's like three quarters of what i needed that week was just a friend that just someone to talk to, especially during this COVID season where everyone's trying to be, you know, more careful and more isolated. And this is a, in anyways, we're better understanding our need for people. And there's something really important about opening up, being authentic, being vulnerable, 
um, letting people come to you with their real problems and letting and not you don't need to like open up your air your dirty laundry to everyone that's not what I'm saying but I guess there's just value in being authentic because that gives other people the opportunity to also be authentic and say hey I'm struggling too and as we create this culture of compassion in our social circles I think that we will all feel more supported yeah amen and I hope that you guys and if you need somebody to practice on you can always practice on Jackie and I as far as being more compassionate about other people's parenting practices because <laughs> yeah, we're telling you all kinds of stories do. you can be like oh man yeah. Kendra psh, can't believe you do that with your kids and, you know whatever this is a good time to just practice whatever. compassion I know for say, a fact well, Kendra's team. a great mom <laughs> no way yeah, Jackie you're really a great are. mom alright our last category is normlessness and challenged social norms there aren't enough people named norm anymore that's the biggest problem exactly so a norm is just sort of a social expectation like the way that things are supposed to be i say how are you you say i'm fine you know we just have certain things that are just expected when i'm the teacher in the classroom everyone else is a student and you're supposed to sit down in your chairs and we all speak english and we raise our hands when we want to say something we just have things that we all know are just the things that we're supposed to do in society and what's interesting is that as society goes on and maybe as more people take sociology classes, they're like, wait a minute, these norms are not set in stone. They're not absolute rules. We don't have to do these things. We can do things however we want. Uh, and I think there are really good things that come from that. And there's some challenges that come from that as well. When we challenge our social norms about the way that things are supposed to be, the way that parenting always goes, the way that children are supposed to be raised, the way that marriages are supposed to go, uh, the way homes are supposed to be maintained. Uh, when we do things differently, there's just greater ambiguity about everybody's roles and, and whether you're doing it right, right? It's like corporal punishment or how long to breastfeed or how many kids you should have. And there's a greater number of things that we need to teach our kids or clarify that maybe were once taken for granted, like like issues of gender and sexuality. So I think, you know, contemporary debates about parenthood often focus on parenting philosophies. You know, are kids better off with, you know, helicopter parents or free range parents? What's more beneficial in the long run, sort of the tiger mom, high expectations, or this nurturing environment where every child is a winner? Uh, is overscheduling going to damage a child or help them get into good college? There's a, a wonderful TED Talk uh, by Jennifer Wright. It's called What I Learned from Parents Who Don't Vaccinate Their Kids. And it's really interesting. She, she makes the argument that whether somebody chooses to vaccinate their kids or not is not about being smart, but it's a reflection of how individualistic parenting has become. There is no one right way to do things anymore. It's just you making a decision for your kids. Health is a personal project as opposed to, you know, I'm vaccinating my child to benefit the community, the herd, herd immunity. If you've, you've heard that, um, heard, ha, heard that expression. <clears throat> Therefore, people are seeing vaccines as a personal choice as opposed to one that's part of a broader strategy for society. But she says personal choices affect others. In significant ways. Obviously, they do. Um, for example, rubella uh, is not actually dangerous to kids, but it's very dangerous for pregnant women. And so we give rubella shots to small children because they are most likely to be around pregnant women. She says, you know, our best public health interventions and social programs have come from the belief that we can do more together than we can alone. So I think this culture of individualism is creating a bit of a crisis because we all have are doing things our own way. It kind of goes back to the anxiety of not knowing 
what we're supposed to do or how much of it we're supposed to do. I will tell you that I spend a huge amount of every single day of my life thinking this. Should I be tired? Is this like a reasonable thing to be tired about right now? Or should I not be tired? <laughs> oh, like, you too? Is this, have I worked hard enough? Have I not worked hard enough? Like, am I doing too much? Am I not doing enough? Like, that is a constant struggle I know that I face. And maybe some of the rest of you do as well. And I just think we need to recognize the fact that that idea that everybody is doing everything their own way leads leaves us feeling weirdly unsatisfied. And maybe one of the things that the Amish have going for them, if you know that on Wednesdays, your job is to wash the laundry. And that's what every woman in your community does on Wednesdays. And you're all going to do it together. And if the laundry is done at the end of the day, your Wednesday was successful. And it didn't matter whether you cured cancer or whether you ran a PTA meeting or cooked a four course meal for your kids. Your job on Wednesday was to do the laundry. And so norms facilitate things. They help us to feel better about ourselves and our families. Um, and it would be really easy to just say, ignore everybody else. You know, you do you. But that it still doesn't eliminate the problem. Yeah. You know? Well, I think that I have a friend who we were together at the park months ago. And she was just saying, you know, sometimes as a mom, I'm not sure how to know if, I, if I'm if i doing a good job. Because you go to school and you get your A's or your gold stars or your thumbs up or whatever. And then you become a parent and you're like how do I judge my success? You know, because you don't want to make your kids trophies and you don't want, do you know what I'm saying? Kendra? Yeah. And well, you were just talking about the fact that, you know, every parent looks at how their child turns out as a direct result of how they did as a parent. And that's a lot of pressure too. So like, yeah, how do you measure exactly. success? Yeah. And I think, you know, having this normlessness, not knowing exactly what the expectation is, is in part why this, you know, this mom, and I think a lot of us feel similarly, is if I don't know what is expected of me, what is the right way to do then things, I'm, then I must be doing it wrong. Way to yeah. do things, then how do right. I judge whether or not I'm doing a good job? And, you know, I, I think it is important to look at different ways of do, doing things and decide what is good for your family, but at the same time, be a parent who is a part of the village. Be considerate of others. Use your role as a parent to build up families around you. Avoid alienating practices. You know, if someone brings you a, a treat, don't ask if it's all organic or gluten-free or something. Just take it, you know? Like, don't yeah. don't have an us versus them mentality and teach your kids the same. Be a part of your community. Value community. Um, Anyways, do you, do you have something to sure, say? Sure. I that, just, Kendra? I think, um, so first of all, it would be weird of us to say that this is a problem with society. This is a structural problem. And then to offer you an individual solution for how you can fix it. Like, that's not fair, right? Because yeah. if, you know, um, we don't want moms to blame themselves. I, I think people are constantly thinking that somehow their conflict is their own fault. And if they just tried a little harder and woke up a little earlier every morning and used the right app or the right planner, they could somehow figure all of this out. And I think one of the things we want to communicate in this podcast, this specific episode, is that's not the case. There are things going on in the society around you that are making it harder for you to do your job in your home. And that's okay. It's not your fault. Like, you didn't cause this problem and you can't necessarily solve it either. But it's okay. Like everyone else around you is going through the same thing. So the best solution is to 
parent with other parents and you don't have to do this alone. I think if we are suffering from normlessness, we can create norms by parenting together. And if you are seeing how other moms are disciplining and working, uh, you know, balancing work and family, you guys can do that, you know, as neighbors, as friends, I think we can help establish better norms just within our individual communities. You know, again, normlessness is a stressful thing, but you can ameliorate that through creating communities around you in small ways that, that help the moms and dads around you recognize that they're doing a good job and they don't need to stress about it. And like, we are all going through the same struggles. I think that's, that's what I want to be the take home message from this is you're not alone. You are so not alone. The people immediately through the wall in your apartment complex and the people across the street on your street are going through these exact same things. So why not let's do it together? Why do we have to do it alone? You know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, well, I think that's a really great way to conclude. Just like Kendra said, to the mom who's exhausted, who is fed up, who thinks that if she could just find another system, work a little harder, or take 10 years off for self-care, just hear us <laughs> yeah. when I say that you're not alone and that those are not the true solutions. Look at the expectations you're putting on yourself and question why you're doing what you are doing. What subconscious rule book of parenting are you following? And you know, prayerfully, mindfully identify which rules are unnecessary in dragging you down and then let them go. Find your people, lift other people, engage in your community, mm -hmm. engage with other parents and, and know that you really do have the power to make this parenting gig a joyful experience. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what it's supposed to be. And that's what we want it to be for you. So exactly. Awesome. We are on your team. We want you to know that if nobody else is on your team right now, Jackie and Kendra are. are on your team cheering for you cheering all for right you. well thank you for joining us today at the family matters podcast and we'll talk to you next time <laughs>